woman dragged her husband in to see the preacher one day. They were seated in front of his desk, and she was complaining about her husband. She said, my husband's not romantic. He, when he was courting me, he used to be affectionate. He used to be romantic. He used to be kind. And now he just sits there like a knot on a log. My husband doesn't love me. He doesn't kiss on me. He's not romantic at all. Uh, he's not affectionate to me. And she was just going on and on and on about that. And so all of a sudden the preacher said, lady, stand up. And the lady said, what? He said, stand up. So she stood up, and the preacher got up from behind the desk. He went around the corner, and he wrapped his arms around that woman, and he bent her over and gave her a big, long, passionate kiss. And then he let go of her, and she fell back in the chair like this. And the preacher turned to her husband, and she said, Do you see that? He said, Your wife needs that at least three times a week. The old fellow sat there, and he thought a minute. He said, Well, I could bring her in on Mondays and Wednesdays. He said, but I fish on Friday. So he didn't quite get the point here. He didn't quite make the application to himself. But we're going to make the application to ourselves because we're going to talk about a subject that everybody is familiar with or needs to be familiar with, and that is fighting with your mate. I am going to assume from your presence today that you might have done that once upon a time. Or if not, I know we've got some young people here today, you want to know how to fight with your partner. This is one of the great life skills. You really need to know how to fight with your mate. So we're going to talk about that as we go through our lesson for today. We're going to talk about all-purpose principles for turning conflict into cooperation. And you've got the study guide and you can follow along. The first thing I want you to know, the first principle you need to take to heart is that disagreement is not always bad. In fact, it can be healthy. There is a common misunderstanding that if a husband and a wife disagree that there's something necessarily wrong with that. I'll never forget years ago I had a fella come into my office. He was a young man, been married about a year, very high-profile fella. He was an attorney, well-known in the community. His wife was a high-profile finance lady. They were a power couple, really nice Christian, educated young couple. And he came into my office and he sat down and he said, Dr. Dan, I got a problem. I think I married the wrong woman. I said, well, that's a serious issue. What makes you think that? He said, well, we've had some fights. We disagree. And I did a little assessment, and there wasn't anything major going wrong in the marriage. They just didn't always agree with each other. And I said, no, wait a minute. What makes you think you married the wrong woman? He says, well, if I had married the right woman, we wouldn't disagree, would we? And I said, where did you get that idea? He said, well, my parents never disagreed. I said, are you sure? He said, I've never seen my mother and my father fight once in my life, and they have the perfect marriage. And Dr. Dan, I don't have a good marriage because my wife and I disagree. I said, well, we got a serious, serious issue here. You, I want you to do me a favor. How often do you see your folks? He said, well, I'm going to go see them this Friday. I said, I want you to do me a favor. This Friday, when you're visiting with your family, I want you to take your dad out on the back porch and ask him a question. Say, how did you manage to stay married for 35, 40 years and never once fight with your wife? He said, all right, I'll do it. And so I made his appointment. He came back the next week, and he, he looked like he was just white as a sheet. I said, well, what did you find out? He said, well, I talked to my dad. I said, yeah. And I asked him, how come you and mom never fought? How did you all manage that? I said, yeah. He said, Dr. Dan, my dad told me that there were times he got so mad at my mom that he had to get out and drive around in the car for an hour to calm down. I said, is that right? 
He said, and he told me that they fought, they had disagreements, they had arguments, but they always went in the bedroom and shut the door. He said, that's why I never saw my parents disagree. He said, they made an agreement at the beginning of their marriage that they would never let the children see them fight. And I looked him in the eye and said, you have had a deprived childhood. And he said, well, he said, maybe it's okay to fight with your wife. I said, well, let's work on that. And we worked on that. Brought his wife in, got them together, solved their disagreements, and they're still happy to this day. But his problem was he had it in his brain that you always got to agree with your mate or you married the wrong woman. And I'm here to tell you that's not true. I had a good friend back in Virginia who was a very successful businessman. He owned several very successful businesses. And we were in a, an elders meeting one night with a church up there, and there was some disagreement about some issue there among the church leaders, and they were having to kind of thrash it out and come to an agreement. And somebody said, well, you know, this is, this is not good. This is not healthy. We're having a disagreement. And my friend, the businessman, spoke up. He said, listen. He said, if I have a business partner... And he and I always agree on everything, then one of us is unnecessary. And I've never forgotten that. The fact of the matter is, it's not necessarily unhealthy. It's not necessarily a bad sign if you disagree, if you fight from time to time, so long as you recognize the rules of fair fighting. Dr. John Gottman, who's without a doubt the, most pre, the preeminent marriage researcher in the nation, has come up with three categories of marriage. If you're filling in your blanks, the first one are what he calls validators. The first category of marriage is a validator. The second category of marriage is what he calls the conflict avoiders. If you're filling in your blanks, put that one. And the third that he came up with is what he calls the volatile. He said there are three different kinds of marriages. There are the validators. There are the conflict avoiders. And there are the volatile. And he's got it down to a science. Now, if you filled in your blanks, if you haven't, you can fill it in as we go along here. But what are the validators? Well, he said the validators are coupled to accept each other's emotions and point of view as valid. They recognize that if they have a disagreement, the other person has a valid point of view, and they're very respectful of that. He says the validators pick their battles carefully. And they calmly listen to one another. Validators go through this process of reaching agreement. Number one is validation. They understand and affirm each other's point of view. Well, I can see how you feel that way. I understand. Thank you for sharing with me your point of view, your concern. And then the second is persuasion. But I see it different, and I want you to listen to how I feel and what I think about this. And then the third step in a validator's process of resolution is compromise. Well, here's what we will do. We will kind of meet in the middle. Now, that's the validator. The validator validates the other person's point of view. They calmly state their point of view, and then they compromise. That's the validator. Validators value communication, openness, being in love, displaying affection, sharing time, activities, interest. Validators just really enjoy each other's company. And then you have the conflict avoiders. Conflict avoiders really kind of just play down any differences that are between them, and they really don't want to explore the emotions behind the disagreements. They'd just rather not go there. They'd rather just leave that alone. Conflict avoiders have this process of problem resolution. Number one, they state their disagreement, 
Number two, they leave well enough alone. They're just going to leave it alone. They don't really want to tangle at all. They avoid conflict. They value calmness, separateness, and autonomy. In a conflict avoidance marriage, people are willing to do their own thing and leave the other person to do their thing. And so that's the way they deal with disagreements when they come up. They tend to minimize them. They tend to ignore them. They even sometimes tend to deny them. Conflict avoiders value pleasant interactions, not necessarily resolution. They don't necessarily have to solve a problem so long as we're all happy about it, so long as we can all just agree to disagree and leave it alone. And then there are the third. How many people remember the honeymooners? Remember Ralph and Alice Cramden? Ralph and Alice Cramden. They are the classic volatile couple, the volatile couple. Their process of problem resolution goes like this. Number one, persuasion. I'm right and you're wrong. Stage number two, I'm right and you're wrong. Stage number three, let's figure out how to fix it. All right? Volatile couples are passionate and exciting. They're very open and expressive with their feelings, whether it's negative or whether it's positive. They're very open with their feelings. They have a high level of emotional engagement. You always know where they stand because they're going to tell you. It's going to come out. They're going to let it all come out. Now, the thing about a volatile couple is that their lows are lower. I mean, when they're unhappy with each other, they're really unhappy with each other. But their highs are higher. And I have actually had some of these couples tell me that they don't exactly enjoy the disagreement, but they really enjoy the kissing and making up. Okay? It gets them emotionally connected. They express more anger, but they laugh more. They are more affectionate because they know that after the fight comes the making up. Volatile couples value independence, equality, and above all else, passion. They above all else value passion. Now, here is a trick question. Every now and then I ask a trick question, and this is going to be one of them. Which type of marriage is likely to produce a, more likely to produce a stable marriage, which is going to be still married 35 years from now. Is it going to be the validators? Is it going to be the conflict avoiders? Or is it going to be the volatile? Let's take a vote. How many people believe it's going to be the validators that 35 years from now are still going to be married? How many people think it's going to be the conflict avoiders that 35 years from now are still going to be married? Okay, nobody. Wow. How many people think it's the volatile that are still going to be married? Congratulations, you're all right. They're all equally stable so long as they are both matching in their same style. If you get two conflict avoiders married, that's fine. You get two volatile married, that's fine. You get two validators married, that's fine. The only time you're going to have a problem is when there is a mismatch in their marriage styles. For example... Remember the young man I told you about at the beginning of this that came in and said, oh, Dr. Dan, I married the wrong woman? He was a 
conflict avoider. And when I did his family background, that's what he came up with. When I got his wife in there, she was a volatile. And her family, man, you let it all out and you weren't family unless you could just speak your mind. And her parents would just go at it tooth and nail. And so she had one style. He had another style. And it wasn't until they recognized where they got those styles and came out with a way to bridge them that we were able to get the marriage back together. People tend to reflect what they grew up with. And that kind of makes sense if you think about it. You don't really learn about marriage from reading a book. You learn about marriage from looking at your dad and your mom growing up. And sometimes you learn what you want to do, and sometimes you learn what you don't want to do. Uh, One of the strongest marriages I ever worked with, I had a couple come in at a community clinic down in Louisiana, and they were having some problems with one of their kids, but they had a great marriage. They really did, just solid. In fact, I remember telling them, if I could take what you two have and bottle it, I could make a million dollars. They just were so loving, so strong, so tight. But I did their family history, and on the blackboard, or the whiteboard rather, I ran out of room. Because his father had divorced and remarried something like four times. His mother had divorced and remarried something like five times. Her father had divorced and remarried something like six times. Her mother had divorced and remarried something like three times. Between the two of them, they had experienced something like 20 divorces growing up. And I looked at them when I saw that and I said, how in the world did you two ever come up with such a strong marriage? And they looked at each other and laughed. And they said, well, we made a commitment when we got married that we would look at our parents' marriage and do the exact opposite. And it worked. Oh, the other thing I forgot to tell you, they were very strong Christians. They got in a different family, a spiritual family, where they learned a different way to act. So here's what I want you to know in our first principle here, and that is... People have different styles of relating and they need to recognize that and they need to find a way to bridge that. Principle number 11 as we work our way down the scale. Recognize and respect the rules of fair fighting. When you go to a boxing match, there are just certain rules that you have to abide by. No hitting below the bell. Go back to your corner when the bell rings. Uh, Do whatever the referee tells you to do. There are certain rules. Well, let me just give you some basic rules for fair fighting. The Bible talks a lot about managing our anger. In Galatians 5 and verse 20, it says we don't want to get involved in fits of rage. In Ephesians 4 and verse 32, it speaks about rage and anger, brawling and slander. We need to be very, very careful with our disagreements that they don't turn into brawls. So let me give you a couple of rules. Number one, no embarrassing public fights. No embarrassing public fights. The more people who get involved in the conflict, the harder it is to untangle the knot. And you don't want to embarrass your mate. You do want to fight at home. You don't start bragging in outside parties. Rule number two, don't use the children as pawns or weapons in your conflict. One of the single most destructive things is when a dad and a mom don't agree about something and they want to get the kid to be their ally. That's not the children's role. Adults have to be adults. Let the kids be the kids and leave them out of your conflicts. That becomes very, very dysfunctional. 
Number three, avoid going global, that is, overgeneralizing. Sometimes when people get in a disagreement with their mate, instead of focusing on the issue, they start focusing on the character of their partner. And you can tell when the, somebody does this, they start using the words always and never. You always are so selfish. You never do things my way. You this, you that, you the other. And they're going global. And they're turning it from a disagreement over an issue into an attack on the person's character. That's called going global or overgeneralizing. So you want to stay away from that. Bring up one issue at a time. You've heard the expression digging up bones? Sometimes when people get into a conflict, they don't just focus on whatever the disagreement is about. They start going back in history. Uh, one fellow came to the marriage counselor and he said, whenever we have a disagreement, my wife gets historical. He says, you mean hysterical? He said, no, I mean historical. She starts digging up bones, all this thing. Okay, you don't want to do that. Try to state your position without blaming. Remember I said a minute ago, it is not unhealthy to disagree. And in fact, I have learned one of the most important personal lessons that Dan Williams has learned over the 33 years I've been married. There is a reason why my wife sees things differently. God gave my wife to me because she is going to see things that I don't see, and she's going to think of things that I don't think. It's one of the great ironies of married life, that we marry someone of the opposite gender, that is, if you're a Christian, I know the world does it differently now, but you marry someone of the opposite gender, and then we spend the rest of our life arguing because they don't see things our way. Well, they're not supposed to. They're not supposed to. We're supposed to have different perspectives. Men and women think differently, perceive differently, reason differently, and it's only when we can bring those two perspectives together that we get the full picture that I'm convinced God wants us to have. So try to state your position without blaming. Here's another one that's really important. Over the years of marriage counseling, I, I guess I've heard and seen it all. I've been in ministry for uh, 37 years, I've been a, had a private practice in marriage counseling for 22 years, and uh, there may be somebody in this room who's heard more arguments than I have, but I doubt it. I've heard and seen just about everything, and one of the really destructive things that I've seen, in fact, I've dealt with this twice in the past five months, is when somebody gets out of sorts with their mate and they boycott the bedroom. Don't make the bedroom a battleground. Marital relations are sacred. The marriage bed the Bible says in Hebrews 13 and verse 4, is sacred. And I have seen twice in the last five months couples who ended up with someone getting involved in an affair, and so I'm trying to put the pieces back together and come to find out the other partner has boycotted the bedroom for the past year. Now, listen to me carefully. That did not excuse the infidelity. That's not the way you solve marriage problems. There is not an excuse for infidelity. But I'm going to tell you, sometimes we can explain things we don't excuse. And Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 5, Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, and then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I don't want to put my marriage partner in a position of temptation because I have taken my resentments and carried them over into the bedroom. I think there's a reason why. 
The Bible says, and we'll come back to this, don't let the sun go down on your anger. When I put my head on the pillow at night and I'm next to my wife, I want that all resolved. If it is at all possible, I want to solve my problems before we go to bed. So don't carry your problems into the bedroom. Now here's one i got to say. No physical abuse. If we're going to talk about the rule of the fair fighting, if you're going to disagree with your partner, that's fine with me, but no hitting, no shoving, no restraining, no throwing, no physical abuse. That crosses the line. I'm a pretty good marriage counselor, but I can't do marriage therapy if somebody's getting hit or shoved or pushed or threatened. I've got to deal with that first. And sometimes couples even have to separate until we can resolve that. We cannot deal with the couple until we stop the abuse. And I've just learned over the years I need to include that in my presentation. The Bible says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. No belittling, no demeaning, no insulting, no threatening. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. It's easy for husbands who are rough and tough to step over the line. And so I need to recognize no verbal abuse, no cursing, no belittling, no insulting, no threatening, no physical abuse. And by the way, it's not just men. Believe it or not, I've dealt with cases where it's wives who are physically abusing their husbands. It can go either way. I'll never forget, I was dealing with a couple one time, and the husband was really meek and mild and kind of retiring, and the wife, she was just a firecracker. And when she got angry with her husband, she would throw a pot, she would throw a pan, she would throw plates at her husband. I mean, he just had to get out of the line of fire because she would throw things at him. And I was trying to deal with them, and I finally pulled her in for a separate session. I said, look, this got to stop. This is not working do not throw any more pots or pans or plates. If you have to, walk out of the room, but don't throw any more pots or pans or plates at your husband. And I thought I had been clear. I said, we have got to do something different. Well, she came in next week. I said, how's it going? And she said, she said you'd be proud of me, Dr. Dan. I did something different. I said, well, good. When you got angry, what did you do? She said, this time I threw a sack of flour. <laughs> no, no. That gums up the works when you have physical abuse, somebody's throwing something to somebody else. No physical, verbal abuse. Now, here's, here's just a real simple principle. If you're filling in your blanks, I want you to put this in there. It's never right to do wrong. Make sure you write that one down. It's never right to do wrong. When I get angry, when my emotions get the better of me, sometimes I may say or do things that I know in my heart of hearts not right. And see, I can justify it because I, I can say in my mind, I can say, well, my wife is not seeing my point of view. My wife is being selfish. My wife is being obstinate. My wife is being stubborn. And so if I demonize my wife in my mind, then that's going to give me, I think, the rationale to be ugly to her. No, uh-uh, uh-uh. Never right to do wrong. Listen to what Simon Peter says. 1 Peter 3 and verse 9. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you recall that you may inherit a blessing. So many times I get somebody in my office and they've been doing something that's just absolutely over the line. They're not recognizing the rules of fair fighting. And I'm trying to deal with that. Well, you don't understand. My wife is this. or My husband is that. 
They started it. They did this. They did that. And I have to say, well, now, wait a minute. Are you telling me they're doing wrong? Yeah, they're doing wrong. Okay. Aren't you doing wrong too? Well, yeah, but he started it. Well, now, wait a minute. She's ugly to me. Well, now, wait a minute. It's never right to do wrong. And if I find myself saying or doing things that I would be ashamed for the outside world and my brothers and sisters in Christ to know, I need to back down. Something's not healthy. And just mark it down as a simple principle. It's never right to do wrong. All right, go to principle number 10 here. If we're going to learn how to fight fair, whenever either of you feels tension escalating, and you believe that your interaction may lead to anger and to words or actions that you will later regret, and we've all been down this road, and we know when it's coming, and it's about to get ugly. When we know that, and we feel that, here's what I teach couples to do. I teach them to take a time out. Everybody, anybody ever been to a basketball game? When referee does this, what's that mean? They're not the, okay, when the player does this, the coach does this, what's that mean? means time out. means you get off the court. means we're going to take a break. Now, one of the things I do when I'm working with couples is sometimes they have gotten into negative, dysfunctional, unhealthy patterns, and it is well-oiled and a well-rehearsed groove. They, they do and say the same things over and over again. And the only problem is it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. It escalates, and they know what's coming next. And so what I teach them to do is that either one of them, doesn't matter who it is, either one of them has the right to do this, time out. And then we'll negotiate the person who, so in some cases it's the person who says time out who needs to leave for an hour. In some cases it's the other person who needs to leave for an hour. But the rule is when somebody calls time out, somebody has to leave for an hour, but then they cut, they must come back. They don't storm out of the house and they're gone for days at a time. They're gone for one hour. The partner knows they're coming back. They're just going to take a time out. And believe it or not, that's one of the most effective things couples can do to calm down. Because when I'm in the heat of disagreement, my emotions get the better of me, my brain freezes, and I start acting and saying and doing things that I know I really don't need to do. When I feel that coming, and sometimes we can do some really severe damage to the relationship. If we let it escalate, and get out of control. So if you're filling in the blanks on your sheet here, I want you to put on there, when necessary, before an escalation occurs, take a time out. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And sometimes it's just that break. If we can just back off and get away for one hour and then come back, sometimes it makes a world of difference with a couple. Principle number nine. If the two of you cannot resolve chronic conflict by yourselves, obtain qualified help early on. Now, most problems can be resolved in the normal give and take of married life. Most disagreements, we can figure them out on ourselves. But sometimes we get stuck. Every couple that I marry, I walk them through a process of premarital preparation, and I make them a guarantee, money-back guarantee. I say, if you ever, in the course of your married life, have a knot that you can't untangle by yourself, you come see me. 
and I'll do my dead level best to help you. Come talk to me, and I'll help you untangle that knot. And I've had a number of them over the years who've come back to me and said, Brother Dan, we, we've got a, that knot you promised us we'd get that we can't untangle, and we need your help, and so I'll help them untangle it. But the reason I'm telling you this is sometimes couples get stuck in some problem that they can't resolve on their own, and then rather than get help, they stay stuck. I've had couples who got stuck and stayed stuck for year after year after year. In fact, the average American couple in distress waits six years before seeing a counselor. Six years. And if you have been having and rehearsing and hashing out the same problem over and over and over again for six years, you have done some serious damage to your marriage relationship. Now, I've only had one couple in 22 years. And they were a really neat couple. They came to me and they said, Dr. Dan, they came from the community. They said, Dr. Dan, we, we, we don't have a problem yet, but we just want to make sure we don't get there. We want to be proactive and, and we want to solve this problem now before it becomes an issue later on. I've only had one who said they want a little preventative maintenance. Other people wait until it gets really bad. Now, I'm not a mechanic. I don't pretend to know anything about motors. And when my engine starts knocking, I don't say, well, you know, I'm really going to be embarrassed to go down to the shop because they're going to think I'm dumb. I I mean, I'm just going to let it knock for a while. Because I, I, I don't want anybody thinking that I'm, I, I'm un, unable or incapable of fixing a car. I got news for you. I take that car straight to the shop and I say, you can help me. You know more than I do. Fix my engine. Well, in the same way, when people get into a marriage problem that they can't resolve on their own, and I'm talking about something that kind of drags on and on and on. Go find somebody to help you and make sure it's qualified help. And and, and the the tragedy of this is I have had couples who have been stuck for six or seven or eight years and they finally come to me and in two, three sessions we resolve it and they're happy again. And I can't help but think, wasted a long time. (laughs) Wasted a long time. And I don't know if it's pride or, or what it is, but people, the average American couple waits six years before seeing a counselor. Couples experience greater stress at certain developmental transition periods. The research indicates that couples can have problems anywhere along the line, but there are two particularly difficult periods. They are the first seven years of marriage. You've heard of the seven-year itch, but if you can make it past the first seven years of marriage, you're doing pretty good, okay? Because... The first seven years of marriage, you're getting adjusted, you're getting used to each other, you're ironing out all of the wrinkles and grinding off all the rough spots the first seven years. And then the second, and this surprises some people, about 16 to 20 years into the marriage. And we're seeing an increasing number of divorces about 16 to 20 years in the marriage. Now, you folks are smart. Stop and think for a minute. The first seven years make sense. Why the 16 to 20 years? What's going on then in the marriage? Say it again. Yeah, the kids are leaving. The kids are leaving. Now, why 
Why is that crucial? Well, because a lot of couples become what's called a child-centered couple. They don't really do anything with each other. They don't nurture their relationship. They focus all of their attention on the kids. And then the kids grow up and leave. I got news for you. Kids leave, if you're lucky. Kids leave. (laughs) And if you haven't nurtured your marriage, that's going to become a danger zone. So... I really encourage couples, you don't need to spend all your time with your kids. You need to spend some of your time with each other and nurture your marriage. But these are the danger zones here, and you need to be prepared for them. Now, what is unqualified help? And notice I said you need to seek qualified help. If you get a knot you can't untangle by your own, get qualified help. Here's, can I give you a little, little advice here? Keep your mate's in-laws out of your disagreement. Okay? Keep your mate's in-laws. By the way, who are your mate's in-laws? You folks are good. You folks are good. You don't want this. Your parents are not the most effective marriage counselors. They are going to be uh, not exactly unbiased and you keep them out of it. And by the way, sometimes they're biased in your favor and sometimes they're biased against you. But either way, keep them out. Now you go see one of the elders, you go see the preacher, you find a marriage counselor, you find somebody who's qualified and who's not a part of the situation. All right, with that in mind, let's go to number eight. Principle number eight. Solve solvable problems. And for insoluble problems, plow around the stumps. I don't know if you can read that slide there, but it says life is simpler when you plow around the stumps. Every marriage has got some stumps. Some things that you're just not ever going to see eye to eye on 100%. Let me go back to John Gottman. He's got one of the longest longitudinal studies of marriage in the country. He studied couples over 20, 25, 30 years. What he found was when they went and studied couples 25 years ago, when they were just getting married, they might have on average three to four insoluble problems. That is to say, things that they weren't able to agree on. When he came back 25 years later and found these couples still happy, still married, still stable, guess what he found? They still had three or four problems that they're never going to see eye to eye on. They just don't do it. And you know what? That's okay. In fact, sometimes the attempt to solve some of these problems is worse than the solution. Just learn how to plow around the stumps. My wife and I don't agree eye to eye on 100%, but that's okay. I love my wife and she loves me. If you think about it, every relationship has three parts. And I want you to really recognize this for just a minute. Every relationship has three parts. There are things I like about my partner that don't need to change. There are the things I don't like about my partner that will never change. There are the things I don't like about my partner that can change. Every relationship has basically these three dimensions. Things that I like about my partner that I sure don't want to change. Things I don't like that will never change. And things I don't like that maybe can change. 
What should we focus most of our attention on? I need to focus most of my attention on the things I like about my partner that don't need to change. I need to magnify her good points. She needs to magnify my bad points, or my good points, rather. There are things I don't like about my partner that are never changed. I need to spend maybe 10% of my time on that. Things that I can't, can change, maybe 10%. But can I give you some advice here? This is really profound. Are you ready? Don't water weeds. Water flowers. But don't water weeds. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean the more attention I put on the things I don't like about my partner, the bigger they become in my estimation, and in our marriage. Just, just don't water weeds. Water and fertilize the good about your partner. Build up their strong points. Here's a key point. A guy named Harlan Stone. He says, the only proven way to get our partners to change is, are you ready? Love them as they are. That's the only way. Sometimes the problem with what we're pushing is not so much the issue, it's the push. Sometimes we just need to quit pushing. The only proven way to change your partner is to love them just as they are. Often the difference, he says, between a successful marriage and a mediocre one consists of leaving about three or four things a day unsaid. And you know what? That's one of the hallmarks of an enduring marriage is when we learn what not to say. When we learn, I just don't go there, I leave that alone, I'm going to plow around the stump. Sometimes the difference between a good marriage and a mediocre one consists in leaving about three or four things a day unsaid. Now, how do we plow around the stumps in marriage? Well, you do it like this. Mutual respect, mutual compromise, and mutual acceptance. Mutual respect, mutual compromise, and mutual acceptance. By the way, this is biblical. Are you going to agree with your brothers and sisters here in church on every single item? I don't think so. I don't think so. And yet we can love each other and we can be united. How do you do that? Well, Paul put it this way in Romans 15 and 7, accept one another then. Just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. There's a whole field of marriage therapy out there now called acceptance therapy. They're just now catching up with the Bible. It's called acceptance therapy where you learn to accept your partner as they are. And the really neat thing is when I learn to accept my partner as she is, then she starts looking better and better and better and my marriage gets sweeter and sweeter. Accept your partner as they are.